A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. This episode contains explicit language. Tell me about the tamales, Rick. You know, like, (laughs) my mother was an amazing cook. She knew that her mother had used a hogshead, a whole hogshead. You basically cooked it until it was literally falling off the skull. And then she made a guisor sauce with dried chilies, anchopasilla, guajillo, lots of garlic, lots of cumin, and then chopped up all of the meat and then stewed that. And that became the the filling. And that, I remember being just phenomenal. I'm picturing a big metal pot, like an, an orangish brown, oily surface to the liquid. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Our neighbor, who was the, one of my mom's best friends, had this gigantic pressure cooker. We had an an electric stove, and it would basically sit on all four burners. It was that big. I have no idea what this woman used it for. (laughs) But that was the only thing we had big enough to fit a hogshead. And it cooked for hours and hours, and the window steamed up. My mother had such beautiful hands. And, I, you know, like, I loved watching her make tamales. Like, from that moment until, you know, the last time that I ever saw her make them, years later, just watching her hands open up the chilies, pull out the, the veins and the seeds... And the morning light would pour into the kitchen and bounce off the counters and reflect on her hands. And it was just, it was just so beautiful. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Now, before we get to the show, we're coming to the end of a year in which I resolved to eat more yogurt. Remember that? The end of last year? That was my big New Year's food resolution for 2022. So how did I do? And what will I resolve to eat more of in the new year? Well, all will be revealed next week in our year-end episode. But for that show, I still want to hear from you. I want you to record a voice memo with your name, location, and tell me what food you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why. Send it to me by Wednesday, December 14th at hello at sporkful.com. And you could hear yourself next week in our big year-end show. Okay, let's get into it. Throughout this fall, as the holidays approach, we've been featuring some of our favorite new cookbooks and the people behind them. Last week, I spoke with Ileana Masonette and heard about her travels and writing her Puerto Rican cookbook. Today, we're talking with Rick Martinez. He's a chef, a former Bon Appetit senior food editor, and most recently, the author of Mi Cocina. It's a cookbook full of incredible recipes, but it also chronicles Rick's year-and-a-half-long road trip across Mexico, his attempt to connect more deeply with the place where his grandparents and great-grandparents were born, and in the process, to learn more about himself. Rick grew up in the 70s and 80s outside Austin, Texas. He and his family were the first Mexican-Americans to live and go to school in their small town. At home, his family's food reflected the cultures around them. My mother was an amazing cook, and she was a nurse, and she came home from work every afternoon and prepared a full, hot, from-scratch meal. And, you know, sometimes they were very traditionally American, you know, meatloaf, burgers, Sometimes they were very Texan, chicken fried steak. And sometimes they were very what I thought was Mexican because that's how we were labeled enchiladas, 
tacos, chalupas. And as it turns out, that was actually really Tex-Mex food, which I love and I grew up with. I just assumed that that's the way Mexicans ate in Mexico. One of the first times I went into interior Mexico, I was so confused. I didn't understand. I even called my mom like, what is it that we're eating? Like, why is it that we have been calling this food Mexican? And I literally cannot find anything that resembles what we ate. What did she say when you said that to her? I think she was kind of taken aback, too. I don't think she really understood what I was saying. And I think my mother went through a time period in her life where she was trying to reconnect with her Mexican side. Much of that reconnecting came through food. When Rick was in sixth grade, his mom took two whole weeks off of work during his winter break so the two of them could learn to make tamales together. After her mother died and many of her aunts had died, um, nobody knew how to make tamales in our family. And she wanted to do it. She wanted to learn how. And so this was her way of trying to, to pull herself back into Mexican culture, rekindle the traditions of her mother. And I think also, pr- frankly, proved to herself that she could do it solo. You know, to me, it was like a cool project that my mom and I were going to do together. And also, it was a super cold week. It was one of the coldest on record in Austin at that time. So, you know, it was a perfect time to be making large quantities of, of food. You know, I was, I was her little helper and I was pretty young, but I'd seen her cook many, many times. And she, she had a very strong sense of confidence and, and self-assuredness in the kitchen. Um, she knew what she was doing. She didn't have to taste food. She could smell the air, the aroma of something cooking and know exactly what it needed and how to balance things. Rick's mom was never taught how to make tamales, but she knew how her mom's tasted, and she used her cooking skills to zero in on that flavor over time. Eventually, she got the recipe for tamales down and brought back a family tradition that had died with the older generation, annual Christmas time family tamaladas, or tamale parties. Over the years, Rick's mom's desire to connect more deeply with Mexican food grew stronger. When Rick was a teenager, he and his mom started making trips together, five hours south across the border into Mexico. We would explore the the mercados together. She would buy dried chilies. She would buy, you know, long, like, strands of, of braided garlic. You know, this is also a time where people in the U.S. and, and certainly cooks in, in Texas were using McCormick, dried spices, uh, chili powder. And, you know, here was my mom taking trips to Progreso to go buy all of these dried chilies. And my my aunts, I remember, were were making fun of her because it was like, why would you do this? To them, it was like the idea of churning your own butter, right? Like, why would you do that when you can just go buy it? Why do you think it was so important to your mom to make those trips and go to that extra effort and buy those ingredients? I really think that she was going through what I later went through, which is, you know, what does it mean to be Mexican? right? When people call you that and you don't understand what it means and they're assigning a label to you, they're assigning a list of characteristics to you, I think she needed to go and explore what that meant. For Rick and his mom, beyond their trips just across the border, their other source of information about Mexican food was Diana Kennedy, a British chef who lived and worked in Mexico. She wrote cookbooks, had a TV series. What Julia Child was for French food, Diana Kennedy was for Mexican food, America's best-known expert on the cuisine. 
Kennedy's TV show followed her out of her kitchen and into the Mercados, where she talked with farmers and purveyors in different stalls. Then she'd return home to cook with what she'd bought. It was food that was very unfamiliar to us. Like, I remember there was one episode in particular that, you know, she was making red and green chorizo. It was sort of like, wait, what is she doing? Like, green chorizo? What the hell is that? And then it was just so beautiful, these red and green rings of chorizo hanging in her kitchen. And both my mom and I were like, oh my God, we have to make this. And so, on the one hand, I loved it. She was showing me a world that I didn't know existed. But this was also the world that I had been assigned, right? Like, I had I had been called Mexican my whole life. And yet, this British woman knew more about it than I did. She was continually lauded as the, the master of Mexican cuisine. And yet, she's a British woman. And it's like, why? So why is this woman the face of Mexican food. I think I was sort of going into this phase of my life where, like, I was sort of exploring who I was, possibly gay, Catholic, you know, what what am I? And I was 19 years old, and I was just sick of, of watching that show. I mean, I, I again, I loved it, but then I was, like, sick of seeing someone that did not look like me, that did not speak like me, represent what I was beginning to believe was my my culture. And I remember thinking to myself, I am going to be her one day. So at age 19, after watching enough Diana Kennedy, <laughs> you say, someday that's going to be me. And you go to college, and you graduate from college, and you get a job in advertising? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What happened was, after high school, Rick went off to college, but he was still interested in cooking. Every summer in college, he'd apply to the Culinary Institute of America. But his parents pushed him to finish school, and from there, he sort of followed the career track he was on. He did what was expected of him. After graduation, a friend got him a job offer from an ad agency in Dallas, and Rick took it. He learned about consumer research, how to be creative as well as strategic, and he was good at it. Eventually, he moved to New York City. By age 38, he was making a six-figure salary. He had a senior VP title and a nice new apartment. But that interest in cooking never left him. I had sort of done everything in advertising that I wanted to do, and it was I wasn't finding it as challenging anymore. I knew that I loved to cook. My mom taught me how to cook, and so I started thinking more about food. You don't give up the six-figure job and uh, the brand-new condo on 6th Avenue to go work as a line cook for minimum wage. So you suck it up and you say, this is a hobby. So I'm going to take weekend classes and I'm going to start a food blog and I'm going to get into food photography. And so, you know, I did all of these things on the weekends and after work to try and satisfy this desire to cook. It sounds like there's a voice in the back of your head that's sort of like, maybe it's just a phase. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At a certain point, you're like, nope, not a phase. (laughs) Not a phase. And so finally, you know, as I'm approaching 40, I I had this idea in my mind that at 40, your life ends. It's all downhill from there. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to do this before 40 because I'm obviously going to die right after that. And it took me almost a full year to actually submit my application for culinary school. It took you longer to come out as a cook than it did to come out as gay. 
<laughs> yes. It took me almost 40 years to come out as a cook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you yeah. finally did. You finally, finally did. did. You said, I'm, yes. I'm going to culinary school before I hit 40 and immediately die. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was like, it was such a humbling experience because, you know, like I'm the oldest person uh, in my class. Right. Uh, and I was the certainly the oldest person at, at you know, ABC Kitchen. ABC Kitchen is a high-end organic restaurant in New York. Rick started working there in 2011 while he was in culinary school. My bosses there were, you know, 19, 20-year-old kids who were, who were, you know, badasses, right? They were, they were complete assholes. They knew way more than I did, and they loved the idea that they were in charge of this 40-year-old. And for me, it was an amazing experience. It sucked at the time. I was like, I've never been treated this way before, you know, like no one in my entire life has, has denigrated me, yelled at me in front of an entire group of people. I felt like shit every night, but I knew that I was going to learn from them. I would watch them the way that they chop things, the way that they organize their station, the way that they clean things. And I think that they respected that and they knew that I wasn't going to fail. I was going to try as hard as I could to be as good as them. And I did. I did it. At ABC Kitchen, Rick learned a ton, including learning that he didn't want to work in restaurants for very long. So he transitioned to food media, first at Food Network, then at Bon Appetit, which is owned by Condé Nast. I asked Rick what he thought of BA's coverage of Mexican food when he started there in 2015. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean... Like, horrific is a, an understatement. Let's just be honest. Like, it was really, really bad. I ended up pitching a monthly column about Latin cuisine. I was pitching a lot of Mexican food, Mexican food stories, big features. I was a digital food editor, which, you know, Condé Nast at that time didn't really give a shit about digital, only print. So no one was paying attention. So you, you were able to get away with some things. Yeah, they didn't. It was with less scrutiny. Exactly, right? yeah. Rick began to sneak more Mexican recipes into Bon Appetit's online coverage. And then he decided to pitch a recipe that he knew well and that meant a lot to him, his mom's tamales, the same ones they had worked on together that cold winter break in sixth grade. He tweaked the recipe. It didn't call for a whole hogshead, for example. But Rick still felt like they were his mom's tamales. The recipe went up online and got great reviews. It was a big success. In fact, it did so well that one of BA's top editors, Christine Mulkey, suggested to editor-in-chief Adam Rappaport that they run the recipe in the print edition of the magazine. Christine Mulkey had basically said to Adam, we have this recipe. Like, it's already, it already exists. It's been tested. People love it. It works. The photos were there. Everything was there. Like, literally, all that he had to do was say, yes, <laughs> just, like, you instantly here is six pages in your magazine that you don't have to you don't have to worry about. And he didn't want to do it. After several meetings and some higher ups going to bat for Rick, Rappaport finally agreed to run Rick's tamal recipe under one condition. His stipulation was he thought it was too complicated and there were too many ingredients, namely the chiles, which I think I had put either four or five dried chilies in the uh, in that recipe. So, so there, are f there are four different types of chilies in the recipe, and he's sort of saying, this is too complicated. We don't need four different chilies. He just thought that it was unnecessary. Just pick one and use that and then be done. He was like, they're going to be too hard to source. 
So me and one of the assistant editors called literally the top 25 grocery store chains in the U.S. to find out what dried chilies they carried to make sure that these were easily accessible all over the country, and they were. So that blew that argument. And I also remember thinking to myself that, like, there are other recipes that exist in Bon Appetit that are far more complicated, that have far longer ingredient lists, cassoulet, <laughs> that takes three days, that has, you know, like literally two pages of ingredients, and far more expensive, you know, duck fat, duck legs. And so why is it that you're telling me that these $1.99 chilies that you can find at any grocery store are too complicated, too difficult? Too obscure. Yeah. To settle the chili argument, Rick and his boss decided to do a blind taste test. One version with the four different kinds of chilies, one with only one. Rick's original recipe came out on top. Adam Rappaport conceded. He was just like, fuck it, whatever. You guys just do it. And so we did. How did it feel to see a variation on your mom's tamales in print in Bon Appetit? Oh, huge. Once it finally happened, it was like, I can't believe, you know, that the essentially the same recipe that my mom made when I was in sixth grade is now in print in this famous magazine. And, you know, then the reaction of, like, my family, you know, who participated in the tamales. It was a very significant triumph for me, and one that I didn't think was actually going to happen. Shortly after, Condé Nast did a big round of job cuts, and Rick was one of the people laid off. But a few months later, Bon Appetit asked Rick to come back as a freelancer. And I knew, I mean, I, I wasn't stupid. I knew that they wanted, you know, diversity on in their videos. Everybody on, on camera was white, and they needed to crack that. But you know, I wanted to do video and, and I agreed. And I was, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I know you're using me because I'm brown and I am going to use you to build my brand. I knew that I was getting less than other people. And I certainly was getting fewer appearances and I was fighting for airtime. I was fighting for money, you know, like it, it was ridiculous how hard I had to fight to get a video made. Rick kept making videos for a couple of years. Then, in 2020, things began to change at Bon Appetit. As we've covered here on The Sporkful, BA editor-in-chief Adam Rappaport resigned under pressure amid allegations of unequal pay among video staffers and mistreatment of people of color working there. After all that, many of the folks at Bon Appetit began negotiations for new contracts with Condé Nast. But Rick says that when he saw his new contract... I was actually going to be making less under their new contract. And I was like... <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> we asked Condé Nast about Rick's story, but they didn't respond to our questions. Coming up, Rick walks away from Bon Appetit and sets out to write his first cookbook. But the book he ends up writing isn't what he planned. Stick around. some advertisements. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. 
You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in like in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line, they take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Now, let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch. Whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Thanks for all the notes about last week's show with Ileana Masonette. People really loved hearing from her. She was fantastic. And as you hear in the episode, when Ileana first graduated culinary school, she cooked alongside her grandmother, taking notes so she could write down all of her recipes. Her grandma was skeptical of the process. Of course, she's like, you don't need that. You just do it until it looks like this. 
Right. How much garlic do we use? Mucho, mucho. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's not descriptive. Like, are we talking like, you know, some people think that two cloves of garlic is a lot. Right. You know, and then she's like, two cloves of garlic? Who the fuck are these people? <laughs> you know, she's like talking like, you know, maybe like two heads of garlic. You know right. what I mean? And to me, that I'm like, okay, you were right. Mucho, That's mucho. mucho. All right. Yeah, <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> Ileana's new cookbook, Diasporican, explores the regional food of Puerto Rico and how Spanish, African, and indigenous traditions come together in Puerto Rican cuisine. It's a great conversation. Ileana explains why she's always pissed off. That one's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to Rick Martinez. Rick said when he was at Bon Appetit, he felt they were using him because he's a person of color. So he decided he would use them to build his brand. And he did. In 2019, towards the end of his time there, he sold a cookbook, thanks in part to the following he had built at BA, and in part to some of the skills he picked up in his ad agency days. My belief going into it was the world didn't need another Mexican cookbook. That was your belief or that was the industry's belief? That was my belief. Just looking at the competitive landscape, which is, you know, that, again, this is what we did in advertising, right? There are a lot of Mexican cookbooks. They all claim to be the most genuine, the most authentic. And there are a few variations. You know, there's like the, the weeknight, the, the Instapot, the, you know, the vegetarian. But for the most part, they're like, this is the most real, traditional, authentic cookbook in the universe. So I knew that I wanted to explore the country. So I thought, I'm going to break this up into regions. And I feel like in the U.S. 40 years ago, Italian food was very similar. It was red sauce, America, um, very sort of two-dimensional. And then people started talking about Tuscan cuisine and Sicilian cuisine and Northern Italian and Roman. And now we have a language, we have a vocabulary to talk about Italian food and its regional specialties. And that's what I wanted to create for, for Mexican food. But Rick knew that would be a tough sell. So he pitched a different kind of book, one tailor-made for the publishing industry. You started off marketing this book as simple, modern Mexican food that you can cook right now. <laughs> Which sounds like a very catchy slogan, Rick. That sounds like something right out of your advertising days. I'll click on that. People will click on that. Oh, yeah. My agent loved it. The publisher loved it. Everybody loved it. And at that moment... That was what you did to get a contract as a person of color. That was not what I wanted to do. It was like it, it, everything else in my career. It was like you get your foot in the door. You do what it takes to get that thing, and then you wiggle your way around, right? So it, it, was, just, it was just what I had done like my whole professional life. So I did it. Rick figured his simple, modern Mexican cookbook would be his entry into cookbook writing. Once that did well, he could write the regional Mexican cookbook he was truly passionate about. Just like when he took the video job at Bon Appetit, he was being strategic, keeping his eye on long-term goals. He got a book deal from the publisher Clarkson Potter. He decided to travel across Mexico, visiting cities and regions he'd never been to before. The trip was researched for the book, but that wasn't his only motivation. I wanted to portray both the people and the country as being really beautiful and welcoming. And I wanted people to see it the way that I see it. I also wanted to figure out where I come from. In late 2019, Rick flew to Mexico City, bought a car, and set off on a road trip that would end up lasting a year and a half. 
He visited 156 cities and all of Mexico's 32 states, covering 20,000 miles in the process. As Rick traveled, he was eating very well, discovering regional dishes he hadn't seen before, meeting people, hearing their stories. But even after seven months on the road, he still didn't feel like he had found that deeper connection to his roots that he was seeking. Until he wound his way to a small town outside Monterey, a few hours south of the U.S. border. Whenever I, I would arrive in a new town, like I would always go to the Mercado. That to me is like the epicenter of food in any Mexican community. And, you know, most really good Mercados will also have prepared food stalls. So like this town was just outside of Monterrey. It wasn't necessarily a stop on my research. It was just a stop that I was making to, because I was hungry. And so I went, walk around the Mercado. I like look and see where all the locals are eating see what looks good, order, the food comes. And it was literally as if my grandmother had put this plate in front of me. Rick was thinking of his dad's side of the family now, his dad's mother. The way that the rice looked, you know, the way that it, it was, it had big pieces of, of tomato in it, the color of it, like that it was a little bit toasty. The beans, the refried beans, looked like and smelled like hers. My grandmother used a lot of pork in her in her beans, and I could smell that pork. And then the guiso, that, you know, my mom's tamale filling, you know, it's got that, like, signature brick red layer of pork fat floating at the top, and then you stir it, and it's like that shreddy meat in that deep crimson brick red colored sauce, and that's what was on this plate. And everything about it, the sight the smell, and then as I tasted it, the flavor. And the tortillas, my grandmother used to make flour tortillas that were really thick. Uh, they were almost kind of meaty, right? And I think the idea was is that you use them to sop up all of the, the sauces and the salsa and the beans and, and scoop things up. And so they were sturdy. And there they were, those thicker tortillas. And I called my dad. I was like, I asked him about his mother because I... I I knew a lot about my mom's side of the family. I didn't know much about my dad's side. Turns out that my great-grandmother was um, a migrant cotton picker in Waco when she got pregnant. And then she went back to Monterrey, had the baby, my grandmother, in Monterrey, and then went back to Texas, you know. And so my grandmother... Her food, it turns out, is very, very similar to the style and food of Monterrey and Nuevo León. And I, I, and I just, I started to tear up. I'm, I'm, I'm here. Like, this is it. This is, this is that moment that I have been waiting for. About a year into his research, soon after leaving Bon Appetit, Rick got an email from his book editor basically said, hey, I just want to make sure we're on track and that the book will still be marketed as simple, modern Mexican food you can cook right now. Right? And I was like, well, interesting that you brought this up. Uh, so, no, it's not. <laughs> and I knew that they were, like, sort of circling about, like, how how we can work in words like authentic and genuine and traditional and, and all of those things that I hate. And I was like, look, you are not going to use those words on me. And, and here's why. Because, A, I don't believe that they exist, right? Like, I don't, I think that these are all American constructs. I was like, I, 
have traveled this country and I looked for those that one perfect quintessential version of each dish, just like I'd been taught to, to look for, and I couldn't find it. And in fact, people here celebrate the diversity and the sasson of each individual cook. And it's also not fair, right? So Claire Saffitz had just published Dessert Person. And I said, Claire, who is a friend of mine, just to be clear, her book, all of those recipes exist pretty much, right? Cherry pie, banana bread, you know, chocolate chip cookies, brownies. They all exist in American canon. What Claire did is she gave you her version of those dishes, right? So you didn't call her recipes authentic, genuine, or traditional desserts. These are Claire's take on existing desserts. And that sold very well. So I need you to explain to me why you feel the need to put authentic, real, and genuine in front of my cookbook with my name on it. Why can't I sell these, this food as my version of these iconic Mexican dishes? Rick's point was essentially that when white cookbook authors put their own spin on classics, they tend to be hailed as innovative and daring. But American consumers haven't been conditioned to want Rick to be innovative with Mexican food. He doesn't get that creative freedom to depict it the way he wants, to make it his own. Instead, he faces pressure to create recipes that fit into a narrow archetype, to be, quote-unquote, authentic. It's very unfortunate that we have taught people to shop for that word. It suggests that there is some greater truth at play when the truth is that this is really just something that I really like to eat. Rick had decided he didn't want to wait for his second cookbook to make his dream cookbook. He explained all this to his publisher. And so I told them, I'm not, unfortunately for you and me, I'm not going to write the book that I said that I would write. And I understand that's a breach of contract. I will happily, although painfully, give you back your advance. But I'm not going to do it. And they say... Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they really knew how to react. Also, think about the time that we were in, right? I just left BA. We'd gotten a lot of press, and I'm sure they were probably nervous. And it wasn't like I was out to skewer anybody, you know, because I signed that contract. Like, I was complicit in that deal. When I signed that contract, I knew that that was my in. I knew that what I was going to have to do to suck it up and and get the book published. And again, it was like, okay, I'll get this book published and then I'll write the book that I really want to write. But, you know, like I just, I made the choice to leave BA to be free of those kinds of constraints and to be the person that I want to be, to explore who I actually am. And that freedom was intoxicating Rick's book, Mi Cocina, was published in May of this year. It features his dad's refried beans made with bacon fat, chipotle roast chicken like the one he first tasted at a rotisserie in central Mexico, and fideo seco, toasted bits of pasta simmered in chicken broth. Growing up, he'd eaten it as a side dish, but when he got to Monterey, he learned to put it in a taco. And, of course, the book includes several recipes for tamales. But when Rick's cookbook came out, his mom wasn't around to see it. She died shortly after he graduated from culinary school. The first Christmas she was gone, Rick and his dad decided they weren't going to do the annual tamalada, the family tradition that his mom had rekindled. 
And then the closer it got to Christmas, I was like, you know, she she was the one that that dug this tradition back up. Like it would have died with her mother were it not for her, you know, spending those two weeks trying to get the tamales right. I couldn't dishonor her and what she had done by not doing it again. And also, you know, I was like, I feel like the kids in our family needed to know how to do this. And so I told my dad, no, we're going to do this. And he reluctantly agreed, and we did it. And I think there's something, there is something really healing about when someone dies and you see the next generation of family, you know, full of masa, like these little kids were like covered in in masa. And, you know, right. there was like, you know, drips of of giso and and red stains everywhere. And there was, you know, the the laughing was there again, uh, the smiling, the giggling. We weren't focused on the loss. We were looking at her legacy, right? And and she was there with us uh making those tamales. And um we had to do it for the family and for my mom. That's Rick Martinez. His cookbook is Mi Cocina. He's also the host of two video series, Mi Cocina and Sweet Heat, both on YouTube. And he co-hosts the podcast Borderline Salty with Carla Lally Music. And great news for all of you who subscribe to our newsletter. You're entered to win a copy of Rick's cookbook. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can still sign up. Just go to sporkful.com slash newsletter by December 31st. Get on the list and you'll be entered to win this prize and all of our other future giveaways. Again, that's sporkful.com slash newsletter. Next week on the show, it's our last episode of the year. We'll hear your New Year's food resolutions and I will reveal mine. Remember, last call to send yours in. Record a voice memo with your name, location, and tell me what food you resolve to eat more of in the new year. Send it to me at hello at sporkful.com. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producers... Andres O'Hara. And... Johanna Mayer. Our editor is... Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie, Eric Eddings, and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Emmy, calling from Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. 
Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 